in our Bibles, church, to Luke chapter 22. To Luke chapter 22. As we continue our exposition of Luke's gospel. As we continue looking at the passion of Christ, which I noted a couple weeks ago, in many ways had already begun. We're looking this morning at Luke 22, picking up at verse 63, and we will go all the way into the first five verses of chapter 23. Follow along with me. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophecy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you so grateful. Even as we have gathered with friends and family members, Lord, this past week to express our thanks Our thanks, Lord, for for the fact that we live in a nation with the freedoms that we have, Lord, to gather without fear of persecution or harm. To thank you, Lord, for how you've given us all we have. There is not anything that we possess that did not come from your hand to us. And most of all, Lord, to thank you for Christ, for salvation, for apart from your intervention to save Stubborn and hard-hearted people like us, Lord, we would know only your wrath. Now we pray, Father God, in that same spirit of thankfulness for you to show us Christ once again. That even as we see him here on trial before the authorities of his day, to understand To behold and wonder his sacrifice, his gift of himself to redeem us from lawlessness. Lead us now, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, just a few months ago in May of this year, I had the blessing of meeting and having a long conversation with a man named Raymond Flanks. Raymond Flanks was a man from New Orleans, Louisiana, and when he was 20 years old, he was arrested for murdering a man in a botched robbery attempt. 
But at the time of the crime, of the robbery, Raymond Flanks was nowhere near the crime scene. He was arrested simply because he fit the description of being a black man in a blue car. It turns out that at the time of his trial, detectives of the New Orleans Police Department intentionally withheld evidence that would have exonerated him of the crime. As a result, though, of being convicted on these false charges against him, he was sentenced to life in prison in Angola, one of the most violent prisons in America, where he served 39 years for a crime he did not commit. 39 years. He's, he was released when he was able to obtain the evidence of his innocence through freedom of information requests and when he received help from the Innocence Project. While he was in prison for those 39 years, he studied law. He was saved. He actually completed a theology degree through the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And amazingly, when I spoke with him about what his heart was towards the circumstances he had suffered, toward those who had intentionally withheld evidence that resulted in him losing 39 years of his life, he said he had absolutely no bitterness for his circumstances. That God was sovereign and God was good. Again, can you imagine being in prison, a violent prison, for almost 40 years of your life for something that you are completely innocent of. Now let's take that even further and consider our Lord. Jesus was the only truly innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth. In terms of his moral purity, he was perfect. He had never broken even one of God's laws. He had never committed a single sinful act. He had never spoken a single sinful word. He had never entertained even a single sinful thought. He was truly perfect. And yet those whom he created, those who were his own chosen people, hated him. And the religious leaders among his own people, the ones that had the closest access to Scripture, to the things of God, they were the very ones who determined to kill him. Today, are we, today we're looking at the first part of the trial of Christ. And in these verses, we see the exceeding wickedness of man. However, we also see the noble majesty and the sovereign resolve of the Son of God as he set his face like flint to accomplish the terms of the covenant of redemption, to accomplish the salvation of his people. We're going to look at these te this text in just two parts. Let's consider first the condemnation of the Jewish authorities. The condemnation of the Jewish authorities. Again, after being taken into custody, Jesus was badly beaten and abused. All the anger of the religious leaders that had built up during the previous weeks and months began to be released by the Sanhedrin and their temple guard. They all hated Jesus for how he had entered the city to the shouts of, Hosanna! They despised him for cleansing the temple of their bazaar during the most profitable time of the year. They were seething over the way that he made them look like fools every time they tried to trap him with their questions. 
And they were incensed over how he publicly passed judgment upon them for their hypocrisy and their deceitfulness. Our first three verses say, that as a result, they were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophecy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming. All of their bottled up rage was unleashed upon Christ with a vengeance. And if we take what is written here together with the accounts from the other Gospels, we find that they spit in the face of God, they punched him with closed fists, they slapped him with open hands, they put a blindfold on him, and they mocked his ability to prophecy. They spoke blasphemy after blasphemy and heaped insult upon insult. But even this, brothers and sisters, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 50, verse 6 The Lord says there, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And what is amazing here is how Christ silently endured it all. Remember, as we talked about just a couple weeks ago, Christ himself said that he could have called down legions of angels to wipe out his enemies if he so desired. I mean, this was a man who stopped the raging of the seas with but a word. He could have easily just spoken and stopped these men from torturing him. But he did not. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2. The very God who created each of these men who were beating him willingly endured their rage, their blasphemies. He endured their slaps, their spitting even in order to accomplish the Father's purpose for man's redemption. He endured this for hours. Redemption. Can you just pause and think about that for a moment with me? The God of the universe on the ground, beaten, mocked, spit upon, bloodied, blindfolded, mocked, beaten again saying nothing, enduring it all. Think of the patience of Almighty God in that moment. Think of the strength of Christ to endure under that when He could have caused it to halt any second He so desired. Think of the mercy of a wrathful God even upon those very men who dealt the blow. And even there, we begin to see the compassion of our Savior. We pick up with verse 66. As the first inklings of daylight broke on the horizon, the elders of the people, the chief priests, and the scribes brought him into the gathering of their council. And it's very interesting to note here that the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, broke a significant number of its own judicial rules in the sham trial of Christ. 
The Mishnah stated that capital offense trials were supposed to take place in a public venue in the temple. It also required that the trials take place over two consecutive days so that the witnesses could be properly questioned, testimonies be validated, and evidence rightly weighed. The accused was to be treated as innocent until such a time as they were proven guilty, and witnesses who were found to be false or intentionally lying were supposed to suffer the same punishment that the accused would have to suffer if they were found guilty. Well, as we see through the various parallel accounts, none of these rules were followed. The Jewish Sanhedrin was acting very quickly and in great secrecy because they knew the larger population in Israel believed this man to be the Messiah. Therefore, they wanted Jesus to be in the hands of the Roman authorities and facing execution before the city was bustling and before word of his arrest had gotten out. We know from the parallel accounts again that they tried to get others to bear witness against Jesus, but their testimonies were contradictory and petty, and Jesus had remained silent through it all. It was clear that they had nothing at this trial that would be the basis of a death sentence. And so they realized they then had to get Jesus to incriminate himself. All during the previous week, Jesus had allowed people to treat him and to refer to him as the Messiah. And so finally, in verse 67, the high priest issued this demand to Jesus. If you are the Christ, tell us. Well, knowing that he was irrevocably headed to the cross, Jesus finally answered his accusers. But he wasn't going to answer in the way they wanted. Look at verse, second half of verse 67 into verse 68. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus was effectively telling them, listen, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine by revealing myself to you in a manner that you demand. No matter what he says, he knows that their hearts are hardened. They will not believe. And if he tries to engage them with scripture, to ask them questions about what they believe about the Messiah, they are not going to answer him. So what does he say? Look at verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He was identifying himself to them with Psalm 110 verse 1. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I might make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. And so by identifying himself with the words of Psalm 110, Jesus was, was revealing himself to them in two particular ways. Number one, he wanted them to understand he was not a political messiah. His kingdom was not of this world. Hereafter, his throne would be exalted high above David's throne, and he would be seated at the right hand of God Almighty himself. Secondly, this revelation of his person represents a threat to Caiaphas and the rest of the evil religious leaders because it means that the Son of Man would be established as both the ruler and the judge of all the earth. His truthful answer incited them to even greater anger, so they issued yet another demand, specifically using the title Son of God. Look at verse 70. Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Jesus is effectively saying, there, the words have come from your own mouth. You've said it. Jesus invoked their own words against him to affirm the fact that he was indeed the Christ and the Son of God. And in the minds of the religious leaders, that's all they needed. In their minds, it was impossible that Jesus could be the Messiah or the Son of God. 
So he was committing the sin of blasphemy, which in the Jewish faith, to claim to be God, to claim to be the Son of God, was a capital offense deserving of death. So verse 71, they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus was given a death sentence by the Sanhedrin for committing the ultimate act of blasphemy in their eyes. In this wicked moment, they had placed themselves over Jesus to render judgment upon him and to bring their wicked scheming to completion. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, victory and vengeance would ultimately belong to Christ. Those who put themselves in the position of being Christ's judges and executioners, they would one day stand before him. And in that day, their roles would be reversed and the judgment pronounced upon them would be eternal. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as a savior. John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus himself said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. However, when Jesus comes again, 1 Peter 4, 5, he will come ready to judge the living and the dead. Brothers and sisters, what we see with the religious leaders is exactly what an unbelieving world does. You know, when we look out there and you see how Christ is mocked in modern art, when you see how Christ, the name of Christ, is belittled and even spit upon in the public sphere, in the secular arena, we shouldn't be surprised. We live in the midst of a world that continues to pass judgment upon the identity of the very Son of God. They despise everything He represents. They do not want to hear that they are sinners, and they certainly do not want to be told that they need a Savior. Just like the religious leaders, they do not want anyone who threatens their perceived power and control over their own lives and choices. And therefore the world, and even many of those who are religious, they judge Christ and his gospel to be nothing more than foolishness. But we need to understand this. The day will come when the Son of God will be their judge. The day will come when they will be called to account before the King of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And they will stand before a judge who needs no testimony because he knows every thought and deed in the heart of man. He knows every element of their history, every word they have spoken, every way they have denied and rejected and defamed his name. And if they have not turned to him for forgiveness then it is they who will be, be sentenced to die an eternal destruction, to be separated from all the goodness and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ into a place of, called hell where they will know only the torment and wrath of a holy God for all eternity. There may be someone in our midst this morning that needs to answer this question. How will you stand before Christ at the judgment? What will you plead on that day before the judge of the universe? If you're depending upon anything or anyone other than the blood of Jesus Christ to cover you, 
you are headed for damnation and destruction, the likes of which you cannot even begin to imagine. This very day, consider your soul. Life lived by you, for you, only leads to death and ruin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and know the mercy of a Savior who died bearing the wrath of God in the sinner's place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could know true life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes us to the second part of this text, the indecision of the Roman authorities. The indecision of the Roman authorities. As we move into chapter 23, there with verse 1, well, the whole company of the Sanhedrin arose from their proceedings to take Jesus before Pilate. Though they had sentenced Jesus to death, they were not permitted to execute that sentence under Roman rule. Again, they were a conquered nation. They weren't allowed to execute the death penalty on their own. They had to have Roman approval. So they had to convince the Roman governor Pilate to carry out their will. And it's important to remember that during the time of Passover, Jerusalem swelled to almost over 2 million people. Jews came from all over that region to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so because the Jews hated their Roman overlords, because they hated Roman rule, it was a time of high tension. And there were those insurrectionists who were always active during the season of Passover, trying to stir up the nation to rebel against Roman rule. It was a very tense time. We know from history that there had been other uprisings of Jewish zealots. And so Pilate was in a very tenuous position. He had to maintain order in Jerusalem or Rome was going to remove him. Possibly even remove his head if he couldn't keep the peace. The religious leaders went early in the morning and began to make their accusations. Remember that as a Roman, Pilate could care less whether or not someone had broken the Jewish laws of blasphemy. He was not going to order the execution of someone for what he viewed as a mere religious disagreement. The Jews knew this, so they began to accuse Jesus of things that would get Pilate's attention. Look at verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They accused Jesus of things that specifically smacked of insurrection and painted Jesus as a usurper of Roman authority. And, and we, know, we know that they were just twisting the words of Christ. When Jesus had been asked about whether or not it was legal to pay taxes to Caesar, what did he do? He held up a denarius and he said, render unto God the things that are God's and render unto Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. He never said not to pay taxes. And yes, Jesus did refer to himself as a king or allowed himself to be referred to as a king because he is indeed the king. He is the son of God, the king of glory. But they were twisting and misrepresenting his teachings and his words. Well, after hearing these things from the religious leaders, Pilate began to question Jesus. Look at verse 3. And Pilate asked him, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Once again, using Pilate's own words to verify his identity. Now, 
According to his tendency, Luke provides for us a very brief and direct account of what took place. But John gives us a lot more information. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18. I want you to read this with me. It's a more extended account of Jesus with Pontius Pilate. Look at John chapter 18, beginning at verse 33. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? You know, Jesus spoke to affirm to Pilate that he was indeed a king, a heavenly king. And that what Pilate had said was therefore true. But in regards to the false charges brought against him by the Jews, Matthew tells us that Jesus made no reply. He made no reply. And this is the fact that alone was astounding to Pilate. Matthew 27, verse 13, Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You see, as governor of Judea, Pilate had been called upon to judge hundreds of accused men. And if they were brought before him, they were facing a death sentence. We can be virtually certain that every single one of them had something to say to Pilate because he was their last court of appeal. I'm sure that some of them leveled charges against their accusers. Oh, those people are liars. I never did this. I never did that. Others loudly professed their own innocence. Many people probably came into his presence, falling to the ground, pleading and begging for Pilate to give them mercy. All of them likely would have done or said almost anything to save themselves. But did Jesus do any of that? No. Jesus didn't even attempt to answer a single charge that the Jews brought against him. His innocence was so evident, he was so above reproach that he had no need to say anything. He stood before Pilate with divine resolution in his eyes, completely calm, completely at peace, completely unlike any other man that Pilate had ever judged before. And remember, brothers and sisters, this too is a fulfillment of prophecy, right? This is yet another glorious case where we see Jesus perfectly fulfilling what was written of him. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Pilate could find no basis to condemn this man to death. And he had engaged in a conversation with an accused man unlike any he had ever had before. So he went back out to deliver his verdict. Go back to Luke 23, verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Now we want to be clear here. 
Pilate certainly did not believe in Christ for salvation. Jesus, if we go back to John's passage, Jesus even said, those who are of the truth will hear his voice. Well, Pilate didn't hear his voice. Pilate just responded back, what is truth? Pilate certainly did not believe in Christ for salvation, but he also sincerely did not believe that Christ was guilty of any sort of insurrection. But both the chief priests and the crowds they had gathered were adamant that Jesus was a, a troublemaker. They would not accept Pilate's decision. And when we return to Luke 23 in our next sermon from this gospel, we're going to see how Pilate literally attempts to wash his hands of this whole ordeal. But with Pilate, there's another aspect of this we want to learn from. Whereas the religious leaders represent that part of humanity that simply hates God, who is any threat to their perceived power and control, Pilate represents that part of humanity that seems more amicable, even though they are no less sinful. You see, Pilate is a person who is in power. He is in power over all Judea, and he's reasonable. He's open to listening. He tried to do the right thing by Christ, even though he had no sense of his own spiritual need or any interest in believing in Jesus himself. Pilate, from a worldly perspective, is, is a stand-up guy. You know, I thought of, a, I thought of a, a contemporary kind of illustration of this. Many of you may know this name. Many of you may not. If you follow any kind of political discussion that's going on in our world right now, there's a man by the name of Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian sociologist. He's been on a lot of different blogs. He's written a lot of different articles. He's been on a lot of different news programs in, in recent months and years. And, and I, he really is a voice of reason right now. In this cultural moment, he is not a Christian, so I don't agree with everything he holds to. He's not a Christian, but in the midst of all the wokeness and gender confusion and political demagoguery of our day, he's a strong voice of common sense. And he has said on more than one occasion how much he respects Christianity as a belief system. He's a guy, just like Pilate, who would try to do right by Christ. Even though he doesn't see any need for salvation himself, he sees good things in what Christianity offers. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Just like those who are hostile to Christianity, like the religious leaders, those who respect Christianity, those who would try to do right by Christ, like Pilate, they're still lost. Salvation doesn't come by appreciating what Christianity has to offer. God doesn't award bonus points for trying to do what is right by Christ. Pilate operated with all the authority of Rome, but he was still sinful, misguided by his own sinful heart, and weak. We will see as we go on in this text that even though he knows the right thing to do, he is too weak to do it. And he bows to the, to the wishes of a religious mob out of his fear of man. And so I ask this question again. Are you one of these misguided people who respects and appreciates the teachings of Christianity, but rejects any idea of your personal need for salvation? Are you one of these people who would try to do right 
by Christ, by Christianity. You know, respect and appreciate what Christianity has done in different cultures at different times. But there's just not a need for that yourself. You know, that, that's a crutch that I don't need. I want you to understand. You're lost. You're a child of wrath. However amicable you may be to the Christian faith, if you are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your one and only hope of salvation, you will be likewise forever separated from God, from His goodness and mercy. You will know only the wrath of God and the eternal torment of hell. I plead with you again, plead with you again to weigh your soul. To understand that the 70, 80, maybe 90 years that you were given on this earth is but a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And what you do now with the person and word of Jesus Christ determines your eternity. Have you believed in Him? Are you trusting in Him alone? Even, even if you are a Christian, as you are a Christian, Christian, are you living in a way that stores up treasure in the glory that awaits you or in a way that stores up treasure here? As a Christian, are you living for what gets you the best and easiest life now? Are you living for the life that you will have in Christ's presence to come? That life is what we are called to live for. Even if our role here is to suffer through the entirety of our days, it will all be counted as nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us at the right hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you living for Him, believer? And this, this is what really draws our attention back to Jesus you think about who Christ is and how his character was manifest in the midst of all these things. Here he is, the very righteous son of God. Here he is, the very sinless lamb of God. Being beaten, spit upon, mocked, mistreated by those he created. Being handed over to earthly authorities that he himself established. Remember Romans 13? There's no authority on earth that exists apart from God who has ordained that it be. Here was Jesus firmly resolved to go to the cross. Again, that fulfillment of prophecy. He set his face like flint to the work that God the Father had given him to do for redemption. His crucifixion was a divine inevitability. This was the Father's plan from the foundation of the world. This was the only solution to man's sinful rebellion. Christ would give himself as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's just requirements, to bear the full fury of his wrath in the sinner's place, and to conquer death on behalf of his people. Pilate represented the greatest power on earth at this time, the Roman Empire. But you know what? He was only a pawn in the hand of a sovereign God. The, the Jewish religious authorities, they operated with an illusion of control as well. But Christ was the one who was in complete control. 
Do you understand that? Everything Jesus endured in the middle of the night and early that morning, all the people that thought they had control, they were going to determine what happened to this man, the Jewish religious leaders, Pilate, the mob outside. Jesus was the one with all the control. He was the willing sacrifice for our sins. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What was happening on this woeful morning when all the hatred of the world was being poured out on Jesus was exactly what he came to endure. Was exactly what he had ordained to take place. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you at the end of this sermon to erupt with a true sense of thanksgiving. Because not one of us in this room, not one of us, could accomplish salvation on our own. Not one of us could ever even hope to stand before the judge of the universe and plead our own innocence. Every single one of us, if left to ourselves, would only bear God's condemnation and wrath. But Jesus bore God's wrath for us. By God's divine intervention, our, iniquity, our iniquities were laid on him. They fell on him who bore God's wrath in our stead. By the grace of Christ, we have been brought from the darkness to the light. And so as we realize that again, as we consider even what Christ endured leading up to the cross, let our hearts be stoked to a depth of love again. Let us be a people who love the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who marvel again at the sacrifice he made for us. Let us marvel again that we who deserved only wrath are permitted to escape wrath because Jesus Christ is our substitute. There is nothing that this world has that can compare to the light and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let us walk knowing every day His tender mercies, knowing that even the sins that we struggle with on a daily basis, those sins of anger, those sins of apathy, those sins of lust, those sins of selfishness, all of it, He is at work by His Spirit and His people to help us shed all of those things to present us before himself complete on the day of judgment. May we truly erupt with thanksgiving for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray.
And Father God, we thank you. Lord, even as we read this account in your word and your scriptures, we are struck again with the majesty of our Savior. Father God, what, with what nobility, what majesty, what sovereign resolve he faced his accusers. He possessed all authority, and yet, Lord, he used that authority to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, Father God, thank you. May all praise and glory and honor be to you, Lord, be to Jesus Christ our King. Thank you, Father. May your Spirit now be at work in us as your people, leading us to love Christ more deeply, to be like Christ more faithfully, to worship Christ with all that we are. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.